0: Our Redeemer lives. Jesus. Jesus lives. This whole thing we're about is about Jesus. Right? Right? The fact that he made these ridiculous, extraordinary claims to be the one way, the one truth, the one life, and then he died... But then he rose again, and it substantiated everything he said, and we believe he is our Redeemer, our Savior. We trust him for that, and the rightful Lord of our lives, as he said. We believe that, right? Yes. And this Jesus that we follow, and that we love, and that we sing about, and that we call ourselves after as Christians said some pretty clear things to us about what we should be about as people, didn't he? So it, should, it follows that we're all about Jesus, and we love Jesus, and we believe Jesus, and we trust Jesus, and he is our Redeemer, and he does live, and he is the rightful Lord of our lives, that we should orient our lives around what he said, right? Right? Now, what is the clearest thing that he said for us to be about right at the end? Go make disciples. Right? Right. I, you know, we had the triennial. Some of you were able to go. And it really stirred me up. Some of the speakers stirred me up. And uh, I talked to some folks who have other churches around And uh, some of them are church plants. Church planting is all the rage right now. But you talk to these guys and they tell you story after story how people are just coming to Christ. And new life is just blossoming all around. And I talked to one guy who in two years after his church plant started had 78 people come to Christ. And they're growing, and they have this huge problem needing leadership now because they have all these new Christians that need to grow. Um, Do you believe that it's possible that we could make disciples? A little less confident on that one, aren't we? Well, Jesus told us to be about this making disciples business. Now, let's just say that in the next six months, God, the Holy Spirit just grips our hearts as individuals and as families. And we say, you know what? Yes, Jesus, you are my Lord and you told me to." God is awesome. I should just cultivate a deep passion for him. People are important. I should cultivate a deep concern for them. And since I really believe God is awesome and I really believe that these people around me are important, I want to do everything I can to connect these people to this God through making disciples, through Challenging them with who Jesus is. What do you think about Jesus? And and seeing them for who they are and encouraging people toward God through Jesus, making disciples. We're going to do this. Not Matt's going to do this as a pastor. Not Matt's going to create a program that's going to do this and I'm going to sit in one of the back seats of the program while he drives it to make disciples. I'm going to make disciples like Jesus told me to do. And so people and families start doing this. They start inviting their neighbors and their non-Christian co-workers To barbecues and to dinner and to putt-putt. I doubt any of you play putt-putt. That kind of thing. And conversations start bubbling up to the surface where you actually get to discuss Jesus in real, normal person kind of ways. Not fanatic on the street corner throwing gospel tracks like ninja stars at people and yelling kind of way. But real guy-to-guy, woman-to-woman talking. What do you think about Jesus? Because I believe he is who he said he is kind of ways and people start coming to Christ. And as they come to Christ, they need somewhere to be fed and to grow and to plug in with the body of Christ. So they come here where you go. And before you know it, we we grow up to like 200 people. Over twice as many that are in here now most likely in here. What would that look like? Can you envision it? Picture in your minds. Who would these people be? I um, did a little research. You may have seen I posted on Facebook a demographic uh, study of our central zip code, 28227. That's our zip code where the church is. I know most of you don't live here. But if we were to bring all these new people to faith in Christ, and and it looked like a cross-section of our area, this is what it might look like based on the demographics of our central zip code here. It would be about 50 50 male female, about 100 men and boys, about 100 women and girls. The median age would be about 39. About 180 of these 200s would have jobs. About 20 would be unemployed. Most of those who have jobs would be in healthcare fields or construction or retail, some in education or finance or insurance. Those are the main trades around here. Um, There'd be about 20 who had never graduated high school and dropped out for different reasons. There'd be about 60 college grads. There'd be about 10 with degrees from graduate schools. There'd be a pretty big span in education. There'd be about 12 people struggling with severe poverty. There'd be about... A little over 100 who lean Democratic and a little over around 80 that lean Republican. Maybe that's the most shocking of all to you guys. Uh, between 100 and 140 would be married. Uh, closer to around 50 to 60 would be single. Never married, divorced and not remarried, uh, widowed, that kind of thing. About six people would come from a cohabitation background where you know you live together before you get married. Uh, probably we'd have one person from a homosexual background. Race, we would have about 160 of the 200 would be white. I'm looking at the demographic right now. Pretty monochrome in here. About 18 would be African American. About 14 would be Hispanic. Hispanic. There'd be four, just a complete melting pot mixture of races. And we'd have a couple of Asian folks. That's the, if we just were, if if God did it as such that we were just an exact cross-section of our immediate community. That's kind of what we would look like. That's a lot of different kinds of people. Politically diverse, racially diverse, educationally diverse, uh, family makeup, diversity. If this were to happen, do you think our church would could do it? Do you think we could make it? Do you think we could stay unified? Where do you think all these people would sit? Would it be the 150 white people in the middle, everybody else on the sides? When we mingle out in the lobby, would it be a natural flow of everybody intermingling? Would the house-to-house groups and Sunday schools just be the mix or would we have like separate group here, separate group there, separate group there? How can you keep such a diverse group of people intermingled? Because the gospel that we have is really, really powerful, and it really, really does save people, and it really saves all kinds of people. And all kinds of people need to be made into growing disciples. If the gospel is going to grip our hearts here as people and as a church, we're going to get more diverse, and we're going to grow. No healthy organism does not grow or reproduce. We're... Lord willing, we'll grow. If we're, if we're obedient to our Lord, we'll grow. We'll make disciples. So how can we remain unified? Well, this has all been a really long introduction to our passage in Romans. Because if you'll remember, that was what, this is what Paul was dealing with in Rome. In Rome, the gospel just exploded and people were coming to Christ. And it was all kinds of people. It was rich people, poor people, politicians, uh, terrorists. Uh, And especially the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians that I've talked so much to you about. People with religious traditions, people who are just coming from an absolute pagan background with a bunch of pagan friends doing pagan things, all mixed together into a big pile of people. And Paul's trying to unite them and get them on mission to make disciples. And his one one tool is the gospel, as we've talked about a lot. And just in Romans... We see that the gospel unites people because in the gospel, all people are called to belong to Jesus, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. All people can become saints in Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 7. All people are weak apart from the gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. You don't have to look up all these things. I'm just proving that this is in the Bible. All people, if they're going to really live, have to live by faith, chapter 1, verse 17. All people are subject to the wrath of God apart from jesus uh, chapter 1 18-32 all people are subject to god's judgment apart from jesus chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 all of us everybody all people are under sin without jesus chapter 3 verse 9 all of us have sinned and fallen short of god's glory chapter 3 verse 23 all people can be justified or made transformed into innocent through jesus chapter 3 verses 21 through 31 all people can be united in belief. That's what pretty much all of chapter 4 is about. All people, all people suffer, but suffering can be productive when we stand on top of God's grace in Jesus. That was chapter 5, 1 through 11. Paul is just deeply examining the gospel because that's what saves and that's what unites. And today's passage is just another twist of the diamond to look at, at another facet of how this light shines through it's it's just another deeper glimpse at the power of the truths that are in the gospel. Now I'm not going to lie to you this passage is a knot. But as we untangle it you're going to see deep truths that unite us all, truths about why we are the way we are, why we do the things we do, why we die, and how we can live. So, longest introduction ever. I'm going to pray for God to speak to us through his word. And then we're going to read these verses together. Would you bow with me and ask God to speak to you? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power therein. Thank you for your word. Please now, as we read it, may a supernatural event occur where we hear your voice. And where we can understand with our distracted, feeble minds the glories of of you and what you've done for us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, if you can and are able, if you would stand as an expression of honor as we read God's word, we read from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin... So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I told you it was a tight knot. We're going to have to do some work to unravel it. One of the big ideas in this passage is that there are really two problems that are humanity's biggest two problems. Those two problems are sin and death. Really, those are our biggest two problems. And the world offers no satisfying explanation or solution for these two problems. Do they? Does the world offer any satisfying explanation or solution to our problem of sin? why we do the things we do, why we hurt ourselves and others, why other people hurt themselves and others? Can you think of a satisfying explanation or solution that the world has come up with? Why do so many men just become workaholics and then neglect their family? Why do we do this? Why do we make destructive choices that tear our lives apart and break the hearts of those who love us? I bet everybody in here has some person in their family who has done this for their whole life, made horrible choices that's destroying their lives and breaking the hearts of everyone who loves them. I have somebody somewhat close to me, used to be closer. We were friends in high school. His whole history can be marked by terrible decision after terrible decision. And I'm his friend, so I can say I'm not judging him. I love the guy. And he would even admit it. From horrible purchases that just plunged him into terrible debt to ridiculous choices with women that that made him prematurely a father before he was ready, made him get married before he had thought about it, made him get divorced before he knew what happened and now, you know, that whole family is ruptured. Terrible job choices. He he would have he got one job that was just a dream job, doing what he loved. And just quit. Just a spur of the moment decision. Do you guys have people around you like that that you love and you're like, why, why do you make these decisions? Well, it's sinfulness in us. Why if you follow the news, you know, we've had the Casey Anthony case and the Strauss Kahn case, and why why would anyone abuse and kill a child? Why can't we even know what the truth is? Why can't we trust anybody's word? To be settled about what's true and who's guilty and innocent? Why would anybody ever attempt rape? And why, again, can we not even trust anybody's word to know even if it happened or not? Why are we so deceptive? Why? Why is it like this? Why are we so naturally selfish and gossip and all this stuff? And what do we do about it? Because clearly, education hasn't solved the problem. Wealth hasn't solved the problem. Entertainment, psychology, bigger, better, more, better planning has not solved the problem. All the blessings we have in America has not solved the problem. Obama couldn't save us. Dr. Phil can't save us. Super Nanny can't save us. Bob from The Biggest Loser can't save us. Sin is a big problem. That's number one. Number two, death. Death is a big problem. Even if you're like, ah, sin, nobody's perfect. Well, back to sin, nobody's perfect. Why? Why are we so screwed up? Anyway, death is a big problem. Everybody can agree, right? What, what pursuit or endeavor or relationship in your life doesn't come to a screeching halt against an unmovable brick wall when you die? Death is a big problem. It's kind of the elephant in the room you're now some amount of seconds closer to death than you were when you walked in here. My watch, I found out this morning, is slow. It's losing time, so I have no idea. I've got like 15 after. You're however many minutes closer to death than you were when you walked in here. I know spouses are nudging each other. Why did we come this morning? We could have slept in. But it's true, and it's acknowledged every time we pay our life insurance bill, we do that because one day we're going to need it, all of us. Not we, we'll be dead. Our family is going to need it. It's acknowledged every time. We, when you get in the car, what's one of the first things you do? Seatbelt. Why do we have to put seatbelts on us? Why do we have to strap ourselves to our vehicles? Because every time you get in the car, you're acknowledging that you are embarking on a journey that could potentially risk your life. You might not make it to the other end, other end of that trip. And that seatbelt makes it a little more likely that you will. It's a scary thought. And you don't want to think about it. Because thinking about it often leads to despair. If, if you don't have the Jesus that we're about to start talking about a lot and the good news, it leads to despair. I read one writer, and I, I should have written down who he was. I don't remember who he was, but um, this is what he said about death. A man dies, only a few circles in the water prove he was ever there, and even they quickly disappear. And when they're gone, he's forgotten without a trace, as if he'd never even existed. And that's all. Well, why do anything? I'm just going to go eat a hot dog. Why even finish this sermon? Sin is a big problem. Death is a big problem. And people all around us are grappling for answers, solutions, explanations for both of these. And they can't find them, and we have them. Well, let's get into the text and follow the thought. If you'll look in in your Bible, we're going to just follow his thought through as he talks about sin and death. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through, through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, dot, dot, dot. A little bit of explanation about sin. It came from one man, and he's referring to Adam. Opened the door, sin entered the world, and death with it. As sin spread to all men, so death spread to all men. Like a disease, an unstoppable disease. I'm not going to go into the whole story of Adam and Eve, because I don't know what time it is, and I'm afraid I don't have time. Sin brought with it death. You know, Way back in Genesis, God told Adam, because you did this, you were made out of dust, you're going to return to dust. And so he did, and so we do. In just a few verses over in chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. But there's another sense in which death is a result of sin. And I'll read that one to you from Ephesians. Don't flip there, stick where you are, I'm just going to read it to you. This is Paul still writing in Ephesians 2, 1-7. Here he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And so on. I read that. There, there's death when we die and we stop breathing. And there's walking death. There's the walking dead. I think he has both in view here. Those following the course of this world, following Satan's schemes, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's other scripture that corroborate? corroborate? Which is it? I don't know. I couldn't understand anything. You know what I mean? Physical death spread to all men like a disease, and walking living death spread to all men like a disease. It's a very bleak and unfortunate. Situation we find ourselves in. Then he goes on with some just kind of miscellaneous notes about sin and death. Says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law. Some of this is confusing, but let's not miss the forest for the trees. Um, Basically what he's saying is, before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, sin killed. Even before we knew how how to give sin its edges in our minds, like this is wrong, that's right. Sin killed. Before we had the law. This is what he says in verse 14. Yet yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. It reigned. We are all going to submit to death. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who was a type or a model of the one Jesus who was to come. Let's not get bogged down too much in that for our sake this morning. Because I want to get to the good news. The first word in verse 15. What is it? What is it? Wake up. But all this horrible, horrible news, problems that we cannot solve, sin, death. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's a free gift. I'm going to tell you basically just two things about the free gift. First, it's free. Why would he say free gift? That's redundant. That's like me saying, I'm wearing a clothes shirt today. And later I'm going to eat a food sandwich. Go, I'm glad to see that you're sitting on that sitting seat. It's unnecessary. It's redundant. A gift is free. Why does the Holy Spirit inspire redundancy in his words? I think to just emphasize is free people because the Jewish Christians in particular always wanted to earn it and work for it. You don't earn a gift or it ceases to be a gift. You receive it. You accept it. It's free. The second thing we'll highlight about the free gift is that it's powerful. I'm going to read a couple more verses. I know I'm reading a lot of scripture and I know it's not easy scripture, but I know you're sleepy because I can see your faces. Hang with me, it's God's word, it's real, it's true, it's powerful. So, it's free and it's powerful. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then tell you what it means. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And if the free gift is not like the result, I'm sorry, and the free gift is not like the result, of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Again, this is a knot that we got to untangle. It's a complicated thought. But basically, the big idea is the gift is exponentially more powerful than the sin and the death. Okay? Now, I've thought of an illustration for this that makes great sense to me, and I can never tell if it's going to convey to you. If it's helpful to you, great. If not, look at me with enthusiasm in your face because it's encouraging anyway. Okay, now let's say Al-Qaeda, they hate us. We're infidels. They hate us. They develop in their chemistry lab a solution, a chemical solution. They, they call it Poison X. And they know it's powerful. They think it's powerful enough to maybe wipe out every person in America. So they release one drop of Poison X. What they don't realize is that it's so potent, so powerful, that just releasing one drop into the atmosphere immediately infects everybody in the whole world. With fatal disease. Immediately. It's that potent. One drop. Somehow it just spreads through all the molecules. Or whatever in the air. And it just whoosh, whole earth. Is going to die. That's pretty powerful. Isn't it? Yes. Now. Keep imagining with me. Okay. Scientists that work for the United States military. Have thought something like this was coming. So they've developed an antidote. Call it antidote x antidote x it turns out is quite a bit more powerful than poison x poison x you one drop into the atmosphere infects the whole world well antidote x is so powerful that one drop of that could quench oceans of poison x just one drop but people have to receive the antidote to be able to use it So it won't, in fact, cure the whole world. It'll only cure those who will receive it. Though it is powerful enough to quench an entire ocean of the poison. So sin and death, like poison eggs, the one sin was enough to condemn and infect the entire human race from all of history. That's powerful stuff. But the antidote, the free gift that we have in Jesus is so powerful that it can quench all the sins from all of history. One sin is powerful enough to condemn everybody. This one act by Jesus Christ is powerful enough to quench all the sins ever committed. But not everybody will receive it. Did that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. That's basically, I think, the, the primary thought running through these verses. This is powerful, powerful. Okay. Now, let's just be honest. Some of you are like, why is he telling me the gospel again? I've been a member at this church for decades. I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard it. Why are you telling me again? Well, there's two reasons. Well, the main reason is just here in Scripture. And I am a slave to what I read and I just give it to you. So God thinks it's important for you to hear again. Even if skinny white boy behind the podium isn't convincing, God thinks you need to hear it. But two reasons: one, I think some of you still need to receive it. I think some in here still need to receive the gift, and I base that on a lot of things. I mean, a we're not many are not growing. We're really not reproducing. We're not making disciples. And Jesus said, well, if you're really a follower of me, you love me. And if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And my clearest commandment is, is make disciples. And we're not doing it. So there's a problem with us. That's one thing. I think some people need to just receive this. Stop playing church. Come talk to me after the service of this week. It would be the greatest thing in the world. Maybe some people think I'd be like, What? You're a long-standing member here. How dare you not have understood the gospel? I would never be like that. I would rejoice. Number two, I think many of the Christians in the room need to remember how powerful this is. I think some need to receive it. I think some need to believe in it a little bit more deeply. Yeah, I painted that picture of what things might look like if we really started making disciples and people started coming to Christ and... Lives got changed and our pews started to fill up, not for the sake of our pews, but because people were growing as disciples and it was spreading. And many of you honestly maybe just think, nah, I don't know. I don't see it happening. Well, why in the world not? As powerful as this stuff is, why not? I mean, what could stop it other than us just not obeying it? As a little exercise, imagine in your own life the worst sinfulness you struggle with. Okay? Maybe some of you men, maybe it's lust issues. Maybe some of you women, it's just anxiety, trust issues. I don't know what it is. I know what mine is. Imagine just the worst sin in your life. Is that sin any match for this free gift that's so powerful that we're reading about? Does it stand a chance? No. It doesn't stand a chance. We're going to read more about that next week, so I won't go too far down that road. Now, imagine the person in your life that you think is least likely to ever come to Christ. Think about Jesus. Say, you know what? I do believe in Jesus and give his or her life to Christ. Think about the person who is least likely. Maybe somebody in your family. Maybe somebody, one of your friends. Maybe somebody at work. Everybody have somebody in mind? Some response would be good because I see sleepiness. I understand sleepiness sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning listening to somebody. I do. I've been to funerals. I, I haven't been in a whole lot of services since I became a pastor. I've been to some, usually in a funeral setting. And it really doesn't matter how energized the speaker is. It's hard to stay alert when someone keeps talking and talking and talking. But we're here, and I'm just going to keep talking. So does everybody have someone in mind that they just cannot really imagine coming to Christ? I have someone. Well, if this free gift is really this powerful, is there any reason they couldn't? Why couldn't they? I think I think we just think it's up to us and our winsomeness and our charm and our ability to bring people to Christ. We're just walking around with this free gift saying, hey, think, take this, would you? Not everybody's going to, but those who do, just going to blow them up and change them completely from the inside out. And we will see it start to happen here or... As I prayed this morning in the prayer room, I believe Christ will shut our doors and scatter us. Why would we exist if we're not going to obey his clearest command to us? We will start to see disciples made. I mean, I pray it so. I pray it so. I mean, he could let us languish here for for hundreds of years. But I don't want that. In other words, the solution is infinitely more powerful than the problem. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than sin and death. So real quick, I have no clue what time it is. Now it just says that it's 20 after. So it's only been five minutes, I guess. But I need to clarify what is this free gift. And it's in here. It's in this text. But you got to look for it. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. Uh, Many died through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God... And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Part of this free gift is the grace of God, his favor upon people. It's explained a little more in verse 17. Uh, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Again, grace is the gift. And the free gift of righteousness. Righteousness is in this gift. That you, we sinful people are given righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ's righteousness as a gift. Verse 18 clarifies a little further. Uh, there, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. It was an act in the past. It's already happened. Nothing you can do to, to make it happen. You just receive what's already happened in the past. Um, what does the free gift do? Am I running out of time? I don't want to keep... What time is it? Okay, I've got 55 minutes, David said. Isn't that what? In, In the text, you will see that the free gift justifies us, like I talked about a few weeks ago. It actually makes sinful, guilty people and turns them into innocent people without ignoring the sin and without just saying, oh, it's okay, I'll let this one slide, it, hold, it, withholds, it holds up justice and makes us innocent. It's amazing. You have to go back and listen to that sermon. I can't go into that right now. I only have 55 more minutes. And in verse 17, we see that this gift breaks the reign of death over us and enables us to reign in life. Uh, it makes us righteous, gives us this new identity. It, it leads to eternal life. And at the very end, I'll just, I'll go ahead and conclude. Those last words, leading, the gift explained, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Back full circle to what I was talking about at the beginning. We're about Jesus, our Lord. The gift is him, it's in him. The unimaginable is possible, is probable. No, I mean, it's certain. Hey, God said he's going to, this work he's begun in us, he's going to complete, and I just believe it's going to happen. I, I just have to. So real practically, I'm, not, I'm almost done. I'm making up for the last last week, it was like five minutes into my sermon, I realized oh, I'm done. And I just sat down, so I'm making up for, for that. Real practically, if you're not a Christian, think about Jesus, consider him afresh and make a clear decision if you believe he's what he says he is or not. If you have questions, talk to somebody, talk to me. Now, if you are a Christian, talk to people about Jesus. It's great to invite people to church. It's great to talk about the weather. It's great to give good advice that comes from the Bible, but it's vital to talk to them about Jesus. And it's really not that hard and not that weird. It really isn't. Just, well, what do you think about Jesus? I, I actually believe in him. Maybe that sounds weird to you. I'm fine with it. I've said that to a lot of people recently, and the people will talk to you about it. Talk to people about Jesus. That's where they find the free gift. That's where they fi- find antidote X that can change everything for them, and disciples will start getting made. And I'm going to stop there. I could keep going, but I'm not. I love you. I hope you're going to stay Um, I'm gonna pray now and we're gonna sing another song together and then we'll pray over our food and I'll invite you again to stay. I love you all very much. I look at each of you and I see the potential of your missionary endeavors in your sphere with your family, the people you work with, the friends you hang around. And I'm excited to see what God's gonna do through us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel, the good news that we can be forgiven and saved just by identifying ourselves with Jesus. And that is powerful enough to save anybody who will accept it. And I pray that we'll experience and convey this power and that we'll grow and that uh, diversity would, will come, but that we'd stay united in the gospel and that even now we'd stay united in the gospel. Thank you for, that you've explained sin and death and that you've provided a solution. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Conviction of heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.